18 and a half has gone to 21 films on four continents. My last film, Bernard and Huey, went to, I think, over 30 festivals on five continents. Altogether, my films have played literally on every continent, including Antarctica. And I try to travel with them to as many of those places because that, that is the best thing you get out of festivals. It's not distribution. It's not you know, any of those things. It's really it's meeting other filmmakers and exchanging ideas with them. Welcome to the Juxtaposed Journeys Podcast, and happy National Ice Cream Cake Day. I'm your host, Eric Spitz, and in this episode I chat with Dan Mervish. Dan was born in Omaha, which also was the title of his first feature film that he submitted as his thesis while attending film school in California at USC. After Omaha was not accepted at the Sundance Film Festival, Dan became the co-founder of the Slam Dance Film Festival in 1995, which takes place in Park City, Utah and has showcased early short films and debut features from directors such as Bong Joon-ho, Ari Aster, and Christopher Nolan. Dan is also the author of The Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, which hit number one on Amazon's new releases chart after the second edition was released in July of 2021. Our conversation ranges from Dan's origin story into the world of filmmaking, to the creation of the Slamdance Film Festival, and his latest film, 18 and a Half which is currently making its way around the U.S. showing in various theaters. 18 and a Half will become available on streaming services starting July 5th and July 11th in the U.K. and Ireland. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes to see if 18 and a Half is playing near you and to stay updated on all the exciting things Dan has in the works. With all that in mind, just sit back, relax, and get ready for Dan Mervish's journey as a filmmaker. All right, so Dan, welcome to the Juxtaposed Journeys podcast. And first of all, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. I'm so excited for this. So we're here to talk all about your latest film, 18 and a Half. And for all the listeners out there, just to give a little context, the film is set in 1974. It's about a White House transcriber who gets thrust into the Watergate scandal when she obtains the only copy of the infamous 18 and a Half Minute Gap in Nixon's tape. But before we get into all that, I want to take a step back into your overall origin as a filmmaker. So can you start by explaining where your interest in filmmaking first began? Well, like most people, I grew up in Omaha and (laughs) I, you know, I used to, there wasn't like any one real art house in Omaha. You know, there were a couple places where I would see sort of independent or foreign films or think, you know, sort of particularly interesting films. And it was also during the kind of heyday, you know, when I was in high school, it was kind of the heyday of the VHS, you know, video store Mm -hmm. era. So, you know, I remember going to friends' houses and watching all kinds of weird stuff on VHS, like Evil (laughs) Dead and, you know, things like that. And, you know, Repo Man and Buckaroo Banzai and all kinds of fun things. But then didn't really do much filmmaking because I didn't have my own camera. I did have some friends when we were 12. We did a little short. But it wasn't until college that I took a Super 8 class and my first semester, and this was in St. Louis, and it was in school that didn't really have a film program per se, but just had this one class, and and I really enjoyed it. And then I looked into taking some um, summer school classes at UCLA in filmmaking, uh, you know, film school classes, and you could do that at the time, just go to summer school at UCLA. So I did that with a buddy of mine who went out there, and it was great because UCLA smells like 
eucalyptus and opportunity you know it's, it's really pretty cool so i learned how to use 16 millimeter camera there and then i did stay really active at, at school with um it was a student group called film board that showed movies every night of the week on campus so you know we'd rent 16 millimeter movies and show them you know to to other students and so that was great because then i really got to you know uh, you know it'd be like independent films foreign films you know second run movies cult movies all kinds of things um so that was really fun and then i was able to shoot the like coming soon and no smoking trailers for that but then i then i kind of i don't want to say distracted i just i had other interests I, I majored in history and political science um and was involved with journalism on campus and then after college i went to washington dc for a couple of years and i was first as an intern and writer at the washington monthly magazine and then as a speechwriter for u.s senator tom harkin from iowa and even in that job as a speechwriter we used to go down and, re- and pre-record a lot of speeches on video in the in the basement of the Capitol, there were a couple of recording studios there. So, I mean, they weren't like creative filmmaking. It was basically talking head type things. But I used to hang out with the guys in the booth, you know, and they were like, yeah, dude, you should go to film school. <laughs> you know, so I did after, you know, because I realized after a couple of years in D.C. that if you stay there long enough, by the time you hit 30, you know, someone just gives you a three-piece suit and a law degree, you know. So <laughs> by osmosis, and I was like, well... I don't really want that, and I can always come back to D.C. if this film thing doesn't work out. So I applied to film school, and the only one I got into was USC. I got rejected every place else, and I was like, well, I've heard of USC. I guess I'll go there. And, uh, yeah, so I moved out to L.A. and got a job on a kickboxing movie after my freshman year during the summer, and like a bad kickboxing movie in the Philippines. Um, but I learned a lot on it, and, and uh, you know, from the director and from other folks on that one, and kind of learned, saw how a movie can get done from beginning to end, and that kind of helped demystify things. But I learned a lot at, at SC, and then decided to do a thesis film as my feature. Uh, sorry, a, a feature film as my thesis. I, I think I was the first person at SC to kind of figure out all the loopholes that you could do that where the school didn't own your own didn't own your negative which was kind of how it works with uh, short films there anyway and so i went to i i wrote it for nebraska for uh a friend had told me about this place called carhenge which is this place in western nebraska with old american cars stuck in the ground in the shape of stonehenge and i was able to you know write a script that kind of ended there and started in omaha and i still had a lot of actor friends in omaha but i needed a local producer this, no one had ever shot an independent film uh in the state before so I teamed up with Dana Altman, who lived in Omaha and was making commercials at the time, but he wanted to get into features. And by the way, his grandfather was Robert Altman. And I was like, wow, well, you're hired for sure. <laughs> you know, and uh, and then Robert Altman kind of became our mentor on the film. And, and Dana and I learned learned a lot from him. You know, just uh, everything from the technical stuff about, you know, overlapping dialogue and, and individually miking people to, to just sort of more philosophically, like set a start date, tell everyone you're making a film, you know, the train's leaving the station. Are you on the train or aren't you? And, and that really has informed both both mine and Dana's careers kind of ever since then. And he's still one of my producing partners. So, yeah, so that's uh, that film didn't get in Sundance and we started Slam Dance and I kept making films since then. <laughs> That's a short version. 
you know. Yeah, definitely. No, that's that's a great origin story, though. I kind of have those humble beginnings of what, just watching VHS tapes and everything of yeah. Evil Dead and uh, Repo Man. And I just want to say real quick, I absolutely adore Repo Man. I oh, yeah. I actually talk about it on uh, Films for the Void, uh, oh, fantastic. a podcast that yeah. I co-host on. It's a really fun oh, movie. Great. I love going back to it. It's, it's I'm so glad you mentioned that one in particular. But yeah, just starting at those beginnings and then kind of getting some hands-on experience over the years, you know, doing some speech writing, traveling around, going to film school, having a mentor so no that makes sense that it all kind of culminated into into where you are now and I'm so glad you mentioned slam dance as well because actually I had that question prepared Mm -hmm. as well so Mm -hmm. yeah so slam dance started back in 1995 can you talk a little bit about I guess how that all started and and or what what led you to be the co-founder of that I guess so how did the story that get started well, I, you know, at the time, the the way it would kind of work, or the way it had worked the year before, let's put it that way, for Kevin Smith, was you would go to something called the IFFM, Independent Feature Film Market, which was then later renamed IFP Week, and now it's called Gotham Week, and it's still more or less the same thing. But back then, that was it was really the, the time where you would, um, you know, show your film to distributors and to festival programmers, especially Sundance programmers, in New York, because this was... You know, you'd bring your print to the Angelica Theater in New York. And this was in, like, September, and then Sundance would see it, and they program your film. That's how it was supposed to work, anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> But, you know, that year, uh, you know, we went in September 94, and we had great screenings, and Robert Altman came to our screening. We had Packed House, which doesn't always happen. We even had distributors tell us, point blank, hey, we love your film, but, uh, you know, and we'll pick it up for distribution. And we're like, wow, fantastic. Uh, they said, uh, but... If it uh, only if it gets into um, Sundance, and they were just really matter of fact about it, and so you know, and that, and we sort of really come came to understand that that was, um, you know, that was kind of how it worked then, and it hasn't changed that much honestly since then. Which was mm-hmm. that, you know, if you got into Sundance, you would, in theory, get distribution and you know meet agents and meet uh, financiers and find a girlfriend and just all these amazing things <laughs> would happen to you. And you know, I mean that wasn't actually true with everyone anyway but that was the theory but the but the reverse was was true which is that if you didn't get into Sundance you would not get any of those things because what happened back then was that all the regional festivals in the US and there weren't nearly as many festivals then as there are now they would just take the Sundance program guide as as kind of the the shorthand you know cuz it was before the internet it was before people were you know had film freeway or without a box even to submit to festivals so they would just take this you know, the written program and say, oh, there's the 12 films in competition in Sundance. Great. Let's just program all those same 12 films. And not only with U.S. regional festivals, also international festivals would do the same thing. They would just look at the Sundance guide and go, oh, yeah, there you go. There's our 12. And so, which was great. If you were one of them, you'd play the same circuit with the same filmmakers, you know, uh, throughout the year. But if you didn't, you were, you know, you wouldn't get distribution. You wouldn't get, you know, anything. So there was this real... Sundance hegemony that was very hard to break through. And we had heard of a couple individual filmmakers in prior years at Sundance who didn't get into Sundance and did their own renegade screenings, most notably Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park Mm. guys. Before South Park, they their very first film, which was their thesis film out of University of Colorado, was called Cannibal the Musical. Didn't get into Sundance in January 94, and they did their own little renegade screening, and, and it got a little bit of attention. 
you know, uh, you know, they just screened it in a hotel room. There was another guy named James Marandino who did a film called The Upstairs Neighbor. There was a group of um, New York East Village uh, short filmmakers uh, who had a program called Film Crash, and they did the same thing. They showed up in Park City. So there was a little bit of precedent at Sundance for doing stuff like that. Um, more importantly, there was a big precedent in Cannes in 1968. There were a bunch of disgruntled, disgruntled directors, um, you know, particularly, you know, uh, in France in 1968, there was a lot of upheaval. So they started this thing called Director's Fortnight, which 50 years later is still going strong as a completely separate entity that runs parallel to the main Cannes competition. Anyway, so we've met a bunch of other filmmakers at this IFFM thing. We all thought our own films were going to get into Sundance and you know, we were all mistaken because out of the <laughs> 95 completed films at Sundance that year, um, or at IFFM, Sundance didn't take any of them, not a single one. And part of it is is just to contextualize, you know, around this time, 95, it, this was around the time when um, Miramax had just become part of Disney, where Fine Line had just become part of Warner Brothers, where Fox was launching Fox Searchlight. And it was kind of the era of the Hollywoodization of independent film. And... Um, and, 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 you know, and Sundance kind of went along for the ride. They're like, woohoo, we're going Hollywood, you know, come on in, Harvey, do whatever you want to do. And because of that, they started showing films with bigger directors and bigger filmmakers and second time filmmakers and, and bigger stars and films that already had distribution rather than ones that were going to get distribution. And so... And they kind of left behind the niche of the, um, you know, the low-budget independent, um, you know, first-time director. All of us who had been very much influenced by the kind of that first generation of Sundancers. So anyway, so we decided, you know what, let's just combine our resources. So we got a dozen features and a dozen short filmmakers. And we um, we all teamed up together, came up with a name that would look good on a t-shirt called Slamdance. And, and we just showed up in Park City. That's kind of the... That's re remarkably, that's the short version. <laughs> but yeah, we decided, you know, to keep doing it. Uh, by the end of that week, we realized we had a niche to fill, you know, for first time directors without distribution and working on low budgets. And so we reserved space for the next year. And we've pretty much been doing it every year for 28 years or so. And, mm -hmm. and because of that, we've shown the first films of everyone from Bong Joon-ho, the Russo brothers, Chris Nolan, Ryan Johnson, who'd actually been a PA on my first film, to Sean Baker, the Safdie brothers, the late Lynn Shelton, Lena Dunham, just all kinds of amazing filmmakers over the years. So, And a lot of them stayed involved in, in ways because all of our programming is done by alumni. So a lot of those folks wind up, you know, coming back as programmers or jurors or, you know, guests of the festival. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. No, and I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned some of those names because, yeah, I was mm -hmm. just watching your interview with TSC Gaming and Entertainment and then you oh, mentioned yeah, right. some of those, yeah, some of those first time direct or those directors showing the first films and everything. <laughs> and, wow. I mean, wh what a what a cast of individuals. I mean, Bong Joon-ho, the Safdie brothers, Sean Baker. I mean, I they such talented filmmakers for sure. I mean, Parasite, Uncut Gems, Florida Project, all fantastic films. And just that's so wild to think about. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. So I guess, yeah, speaking of mm -hmm. independent film and everything, I know you also have a book, The, Cheerf the Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking. So what was your ultimate inspiration yes. behind writing that book? Well, I had been writing sort of individual articles for various publications, m most prominently um, 
uh, filmmaker magazine. I've, I've written a lot for them over the years. And, you know, and it, it was always kind of like, oh, how do you cast A-list actors in a, in a micro-budget film? How do you direct an ensemble? You know, how do you do this kind of distribution or, you know, writing an article about crowdfunding or things like that? And then eventually I kind of realized like, oh, if I kind of stick those together I can pitch a book and um, turns out it it was like half a book I still had quite a lot to write Um, (laughs) you know so then I went to Focal Press which is actually part of Rutledge which is a big British-based academic publisher now and and they were into it they're like yeah you should write a book I was like okay you know and honestly a, a big motivation was also just so I could remember what to do each time (laughs) <laughs> I make a movie so that I would remember it for the next time. It's like, literally, it's my own little guidebook. But it, I figured it would help other folks, too. So, yeah, we uh, I just wrote the second edition of it. came out last summer. And then, actually, the audio edition, the audio book, because uh, I carved out the audio rights for myself, uh, which is a good <laughs> lesson. That just came out a couple months ago using this very microphone. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, you like the sound of this microphone, buy the book. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. No, I'll definitely have to check that out. Admittedly, I've not read your book yet, but it's it's something I, I definitely am, am interested in, just the more behind-the-scenes aspect of all the work that goes into making a film, I guess, from the beginning, because that's, that's something that just absolutely fascinates me. Yeah, and it's, and it's a lot of stuff that... It's not that they don't teach you in film school, but people forget about it. It's like the taxes and accounting I mean, I just mm-hmm. just a second ago I got a text from my writing producing partner saying oh don't forget to send a check to the accountant it's like oh and sign the contract with the thing it's literally legal and accounting you know that I still <laughs> have to do uh and I'm exhausted from you know traveling around with the film but it's mm-hmm. those are the essential things you have to do because essentially you are an entrepreneur and you're setting up businesses and llcs and dealing with lawyers and contracts and you know mm-hmm. maybe every five years you get to spend a couple weeks on set but you know you're not really a director unless you're producing most of the time <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i mean that's a dirty little secret of directing independent film is that you're not really directing most of the time you're really producing most of the time <laughs> which oh, definitely. hopefully you've yeah, yeah so anyway so the book is about that but it's also a little bit of an oral history along the way of slam dance i put in all my poems because I, I write and recite an opening night poem every year at slam dance and um uh, so those are in there and and kind of you know brushes with more famous people than me because no one's heard of me so you know there's little <laughs> chapters on nolan and russo and robert altman and you know different folks like that along the way that i've met and have learned stuff from yeah, oh, definitely. And I guess speaking of that in mind of just people who you met and, and learned stuff from and kind of got inspired by, are, are there any particular films or directors that are big sources of inspiration for you? Well, I mean, Altman was even before I met him, which was mm-hmm. kind of a nice coincidence, honestly. You know, MASH and Nashville were, you know, real seminal films for myself, but plenty of other people too. Yeah, probably more than like Kubrick or Scorsese, but also Alan Pakula, um, his, especially his kind of 70s conspiracy type films, you know, those All the President's Men, Three Days at the Condor. Um, what, wait, was that Pakula? That wasn't Pakula. Just to clear up any confusion, Three Days of the Condor was actually directed by Sidney Pollack, who Dan actually mentions in just a few seconds as another notable director. Anyway, back to the conversation. Anyway, but then other people like like Frankenheimer was had some amazing films and Sidney Pollack and I don't know all 
all I, I try not to like fetishize individual directors because mm. um, the reality is I know that you know every director struggles and mm-hmm. you know has some hits and some misses and stylistically they're not all going to be the same from film to film and so you may like one film by one director for a particular style but they may do something completely different in another film mm-hmm. so I I think it's healthy to not not to overemphasize you know a particular film or filmmaker uh, mm-hmm. you know I mean I always liked Hitchcock and but I like westerns and war movies and all kinds of things yeah for sure no and i can definitely pick up on some of those influences in your work for sure and it makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense in regards to what you do based on your influences and yeah no i think you bring up a really good point too about how you can't necessarily just look at the filmmaker themselves um because sometimes there's some individual work that they'll do that you'll really click with and really like and then some that you just won't click with as much or just doesn't speak to you as much so yeah i I notice that all the time just digging into different directors filmographies (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but but also, I mean, I, you know, because I've been involved with slam dance, I mean, I'm also very influenced by contemporary filmmakers and obscure ones that most people have never heard of, um, <laughs> you know, and not just a bunch of old white guys, but, you know, filmmakers like Lisa Raven, who had a film with the first slam dance, Deborah Eisenstadt, who's had three films, Heidi Van Leer, like, these are amazing genius women filmmakers who are some of my best friends. And you know, honestly, not that many people have heard of them or their films, but they should really che- be checking them out. And then also international filmmakers like Javier uh, Andrade from Ecuador is a good friend who does some amazing stuff. And Rodrigue Forestier in France, he's actually a co-executive producer on 18 and a Half, is a great friend, who's a terrific filmmaker. You know, and I've stayed friends with Bong, you know, and, and mm-hmm. he's doing great. So, <laughs> and, and Gina Prince Bythewood is one. And, you know, I mean, all, all kinds of amazing directors from all kinds of places. And, you know, and I think that's the, the, the danger is when you, you fall prey to, okay, what is the canon? What, or, or the, you know, the, 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 the greatest hits of, of, you know, certain eras or certain directors or certain, you know, uh, uh, genders of directors mm-hmm. or genres of directors, you can you can miss a lot. I mean, but you know that's the nice thing is that over 120 years of filmmaking, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> so um, from all over the world, as people are discovering Indian filmmaking with RRR, and you know, oh, like, yeah. but you know, there's a great Indian filmmaker named Q who had a film at Slamdance called Gandu a few years ago that is still like one of the most transgressive, weird messed up films you know anyone's ever seen um and and then he had some people who worked on that film did a film called cat sticks which was equally amazing and weird and like you wouldn't expect it to be an indian film so (laughs) so there's some amazing filmmaking going on all over the globe which brings me to one reason I like to go to not, I mean, for, moving aside from slam dance itself, mm-hmm. I go to a lot of film festivals with my films. I mean, um, 18 and a half has gone to 21 films on four continents. My last film, Bernard and Huey went to, I think over 30 festivals on five continents. You know, I can't, I, you know, altogether, my films have played literally on every continent, including Antarctica. And I try to travel with them to as many of those places because that, that is the best thing you get out of festivals is not distribution. It's not, you know, any of those things. It's really, it's meeting other filmmakers and, and, um, and exchanging ideas with them. Oh yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So much good stuff there. And I, I was, uh, scribbling down those directors <laughs> names and, uh, and films and everything. I'm sure I'm going to be adding a lot to my letterbox watch list. If, if you're not on letterbox, uh, definitely join. It's, uh, yeah, it's a I am, platform. but it's a little, <laughs> I, I think, I think it's a little dubious, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> Especially when your own film was on there and you're reading people's reviews and you're like, oh, 
it's just you know it's sort of it's barely mm-hmm. a cut above you know the troll farms sometimes but um yeah but it's yeah, you know it's it's gotten a lot more credibility in the last few years and so it's um i i, I mm-hmm. see the value in it for sure yeah definitely but the you know but but there's a big problem that a lot of these films from the 90s and 2000s are not watchable you can't find them. You can't. Mm-hmm. I know you can't find Low. You can't find Heidi Van Leer's films. You, it's hard to find Lynn Shelton's early films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a real problem with sort of the lack of archiving and, and curation for for these. You know, this wave of you know late '90s, 2000s independent films that was such a dominant thing in in the film world. Mm-hmm. And yet it's really hard to find these things. So I'm literally staring at my negative from my first film, o- Omaha the Movie, um, <laughs> in, and it's sitting in my garage, which it's probably not the best place for it. <laughs> but I'm in my garage and it might not be the best place for me either. You know, who knows? Um, <laughs> we're all we're all wasting away into vinegar syndrome nitrate, you know. So, um, But anyway. But I digress. So uh, let's talk about my film, 18 and a half. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, yeah. No, I was actually just about to about to segue there next. So perfect, yeah. So yeah, your uh, you latest yeah. film, 18 and a half. Um, where did the idea of, of that all come together? So the last film I did, Bernard and Huey, was written by Jules Pfeiffer, famous cartoonist and screenwriter. And he, at the time, was living in Shelter Island. Well, we finished shooting the film. The last day, we shot most of it in, in LA, including my garage. We do a lot in my garage. <laughs> but the last day of shooting was in New York, and it coincided with the presidential election of 2016. And then the next day, I drove out to uh, to Shelter Island, saw Jules, and you know, inevitably, I, I was showing him dailies from the film. In case you're unfamiliar with that term, dailies are essentially the raw, unedited film footage shot during that day. This footage is then reviewed in order to assess the progress and quality of the shoot so the creative team can adjust their plans going forward. Anyway, back to Dana and I's conversation. But inevitably we started talking about comparisons between Trump and Nixon because mm-hmm. the election had just happened. And, you know, and, and Pfeiffer was won a Pulitzer Prize essentially for his cartoons about Nixon and Watergate. So, you know, we were just kind of chatting about that. And then that night I stayed with a buddy of mine, um, Terry Keefe, who at the time was running the um, Silver Sands Motel, which is a motel. It's a ferry ride across from Shelter Island to Greenport, New York, which is, this is the very tip of the north end of of Long Island. And he had inherited this motel from his parents, uh, sorry, from his grandparents, really, in the 50s and 60s, who'd Mm -hmm. built it. But it was kind of frozen in amber in like 1974. You know, it, it, it had never been upgraded since then and, and Terry's a smart guy he had gone to film school he'd gone to USC film school too around the same time I was there so he had you know he'd maintained a really cool vintage look for the for the place and it was home to a lot of fashion shoots especially still fashion shoots and some episodics had shot there music videos had shot there but no one had ever shot a feature and he said hey Dan if you think of an idea we're closed in the winter you know we're available you know you and the cast and crew can all stay here and I was like oh my god that's amazing and and he was with me when we were talking to Pfeiffer so we we both kind of had Nixon on the brain and I was thinking like oh wow this looks like 1974 maybe there's a Watergate film in in somehow there's a way to pigeonhole Watergate film into this into this great location and it took a while and I collaborated with a great screenwriting partner of mine, uh, Daniel Moya, and, and eventually Daniel, Terry, and I would be the producers of the film. And we came up with a, a storyline about this 
transcriber in Washington who gets a hold of the missing 18 and a half minute gap and then meets up with a reporter at a seaside motel. We actually changed the location to uh, Maryland. We said it was in, on the Chesapeake because mm-hmm. it kind of looks like that. And that's when they run afoul of hippie swingers and nefarious people out to get them. Yeah, no, for sure. And yeah, and, and I, I watched 18 and a half recently and, and it does really capture that time period really well. Granted, I, I did not grow up in the 1970s. <laughs> I grew up in, <laughs> I was born in 1991, but I do feel like it captures that time period really well. And um, yeah, it's, it's one of the aspects I really love about the film personally. But mm-hmm. yeah, and I'm yes. glad you mentioned about the locations as well. But yeah. now out of curiosity, did you run into any issues, I guess, with costumes or hunting down a reel to reel player or anything to really capture that time period? It was it was not as hard as we thought. Um, it mm. took a lot of hard work. We have a we had an amazing uh, costume designer named Sarah Kogan who collects well she collects some vintage clothes themselves, but also what was most relevant for us was she collects vintage patterns like paper patterns, mm. and so then she'll make new clothes with these old patterns for the actors and uh, like just single handedly just would sew these things together in the middle of the night, which was pretty impressive. And then the real, the real players. Funny you mentioned that. That actually came from watching a film at Slamdance called *The Vast of Night*, Andrew Patterson's great film. And he had his was a little slightly different period. I think it was in the fifties, but he had a lot of real, the real players in his film. And so he gave me great advice on tracking them down through eBay. And hmm. we were able to get, you know, because we had to get like four or five of them uh, and working, and they had to be, you know, pretty much working ones, or at least the mm-hmm. look like they were working. <laughs> and we were able to find them. And we have a great, we had a great production designer, Monica. Nebraska, and she was the one kind of assembling all these things. And, you know, and there was a lot of great furniture at, at the property, but it was a matter of moving things around. We had to rebuild this spiral staircase, which, you know, all the pieces were there. Most of the pieces were there. And it took like three <laughs> three days to, to build this thing. Anyway, it was uh, it was a challenge for sure. It wasn't easy, but I, you know, I, I was sort of, we all kind of demystified the idea that you can't do a period film on a low budget. We're like, no, it's, look, the location does 90% of the heavy, of the heavy list lifting. And, and mm. if you're smart about your costume choices and your location choices and where you point the camera, you know, don't point it at a satellite dish. Uh, <laughs> so you can you can do these things. And, you know, we found it. We found a couple of people locally that had vintage cars and the ferry had a vintage ferry, you know, which was a remarkable. Daniel's aunt worked at a vintage diner, which was mm-hmm. down the, down the street from, from the motel. It's, it can be done. It can, mm-hmm. it can be done. But I mean, the, the, the mandate I gave for everyone on the film from writing to costumes to camera, especially, but, but also the music was, you know, let's only use the creative and, and, and and technical means that would have been at our disposal in 1974. Other than the camera itself, which was digital, because it really is expensive to shoot film, but the lenses were all vintage, the instrument the musical instruments the moog synthesizer and uh you know the you know real horns and things like that mm-hmm. for the bossa nova music because it's all an original soundtrack by uh louis guerra you know so we really just kind of embraced you know we and and honestly the fact that we were all living there kind of made it easy for us to all kind of get into that period vibe <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it was so, it was method it was method period so <laughs> no, definitely no, that's awesome. But yeah, I kind of got curious myself while I was doing mm-hmm. research and preparing questions of this interview. But I even Googled, I was like, how hard is it to track down a reel-to-reel player? And I was kind of surprised that they've been kind of making a resurgence. They have, um, and yeah. they're more accessible than I thought they'd be. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's wild. Um, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned about the the camera techniques and everything as well, because I found that really admirable. I was just listening to your interview earlier today on the show Don't Tell Microbudgeting Filmmaking right, yeah. Podcast, and you kind of were talking briefly about that as well, about using some of the techniques that were, I guess, you know, primarily used during that time period to make it feel authentic and everything. And yeah, I always I always appreciate when filmmakers go the extra mile to kind of, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, antique something or what have you to make it fit within the time period. I think that only adds to the, the authenticity of it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thanks, um, yeah. So awesome. Now, at the time of, of this recording, we're recording in early June, 18 and a half is currently making its way around the U.S. or uh, showing around various theaters and will hit streaming services starting July 5th and July 11th in the UK and Ireland. And I see mm-hmm. you've been outside theaters with a sandwich board and all promoting the film. I've been uh, <laughs> loving your posts on yeah. Twitter and everything like that. So Thanks. I guess uh, how many locations and events are you able to make it to in person? Well, you know, I mean, the nice thing is that we have so many people that worked on the film that if mm-hmm. I can't be somewhere, then, you know, if I would like our premiere you know our theatrical premiere we had a new york premiere the same night as our la premiere well i I couldn't be in both places at once so i was at Mm -hmm. the la premiere with kind of the la team which was mainly luis the composer caro pieroto our our featured vocalist and uh, el schneider our cinematographer and then simultaneously producer and writer daniel moya and i think terry was there one of our associate producers and and a number of the cast were in new york so we're kind of dividing and conquering so I covered the L.A. screenings for the first week or so, which were at Lemley's and wearing a sandwich board, like you said. And then, <laughs> um, and then I headed out to Washington, D.C. for a D.C. premiere, then up to New York for kind of the tail end of our first week at IFC Center, but then they held it over for a second week. Then mm-hmm. Daniel and I both went up to Rhinebeck at Upstate Films in, in upstate New York. And then th- in a couple of days, I'm going to Seattle. Then maybe, sh- oh, pro- uh, probably Sedona, but Luis is definitely going to Sedona. And then maybe Chicago, then Omaha, then Wichita. You know, but then meanwhile, Daniel and Terry are going to Huntington, New York for a big screening. Our executive producer, Tel Gannison, organized a huge premiere in Detroit last week which none of the rest of us were able to get to but we're like hey man knock it out of the park and he did there were like (laughs) billboards or fancy meals and we're like wow it was it was uh it was something so you know so we're really and you know we're getting uh, our you know just backers just crowdfunding backers to to help do q a's at, at different screenings around the country where they are so yeah i mean there's an advantage and disadvantage to playing 60 cities in in less than a month, which is that you can't be everywhere all at once. And, and that's just, you know, the nature of, of geography. <laughs> so, uh, you know, how do you promote and how do you, how do you make the most out of all those screenings? No, definitely. No, and yeah. it works out really well that you have a, a crew that can be in kind of all the places you, you can't be. Cause yeah, to your point, you can't be everywhere at once. So it's nice that you have a, a nice tight knit crew that's able to kind of fill the gaps and go into different places and, mm-hmm. you know, make your presence known across the country. So that's that's definitely important. And now I was actually listening to your interview on the Projection Booth podcast. And on there you mentioned that you've kind of been talking and in the early stages uh, with theaters about potentially turning 18 and a half into a stage play. Is that is that yeah, still something yeah, that might be in the works? Yeah, nice. definitely. Yeah, because I mean, it is a fairly self-contained piece mm-hmm. with the limited cast and you know limited locations so it, it could be you know there's been a, f- a couple different theater companies that have talked to us about maybe turning it into a play and then of course the soundtrack is out now and uh and available wherever fine soundtracks are sold mm-hmm. 
And then there's been a little bit of chatter about turning it into a TV episodic series, but I'll, I'll believe that when I see it. So, <laughs> so you never know. I mean, the nice thing is, you know, it's it's all original, you know, content, so we can kind of have fun with it and do with it what we want. Well, you mentioned the VOD dates in the U.S. and then also in the U.K. and and, and Ireland, but we're also we've got our Australian premiere because we're still playing at a few festivals in at Revelation Perth, which is a great festival in uh, in Australia in a few weeks, and then um, it's going to start airing on airlines in I think September, maybe August, maybe as early as August. Um, but we have an airline distributor that's working on that, and maybe cruise ships too. And then DVD and Blu-ray in the in the in the fall. So nice. A lot going yeah, on. but no, I, I mean, I, just after watching eighteen and a half, uh, I think it would be really effective as a stage play for sure. Because I just oh great, yeah, thanks. Yeah, like I feel like the logistics, you know, really makes sense for it. Uh, to your point, I mean, mm-hmm. there, it's very limited. You know, setting changes. It primarily takes place mm-hmm. in, in just a couple settings, and you know, limited cast. And I think there's enough you know, substance to the storyline and texture going on to make it interesting and wondering what's going to happen next type thing. Like I think of films like, like uh, the hateful late or something like that, which actually mm-hmm. I believe was supposed to originally be a, a stage play. Oh, I see. Okay. Because there's so many, you know, it, it primarily takes place in one room, but there's so many things going on in the background. So many characters, you don't know who to trust or what's going on. So I feel like those especially make really effective stage plays because you're kind of bouncing around your eyes and just kind of looking across everything going on and trying to make sense of what all is happening type thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, that's that's exciting. Yeah, no, I, I wish you nothing but the best in, in that regard. Now, um, I guess in, in addition to the potential of that um, and all the places that you're traveling around promoting 18 and a half, do you currently have any upcoming events or projects or anything else in the works that you're excited about right now? Not really. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would take up a, a lot of your yeah, time. For no, sure. <laughs> I mean, I really, I mean, I wish I did, but no, I mean, this is it. This is, you know, I mean, it's a fiduciary duty I have to my investors and my backers that I put my all into helping get the film out there. And, and it's a commitment to the distributors that I help them do mm-hmm. whatever it is they're doing. So no, this is it. I may be doing, so I do a lot of guest lecturing at film schools and universities. And so starting to think about in the fall, especially, you know, once people are back in session, like combining screenings with guest lectures and things like that. Actually, I just found out today in Seattle, I'm going to be doing a guest lecture at a high school. So nice, you know, which is a lot of fun. So yeah, I really enjoy doing that kind of thing. And and honestly, sometimes it, it even pays. So but no, I don't have anything super obvious on the horizon that's next for me. So if anyone wants to hire me, let me know. (laughs) <laughs> it would literally be the first time. So <laughs> nice, yeah, I know, and, and definitely killing two birds with one stone there. If you're able to show your film at you know at, at different places where you're mm-hmm. lecturing and yeah. everything like that, so yeah, that's I mean, promoting the film, marketing it, teaching people, it's yeah, can't beat it. <laughs> you know, it's very similar in that sense to you know we have to as filmmakers we have to look at what musicians were doing ten years ago, mm-hmm. you know, because everything it, it, film always trails music by about ten or fifteen years and. You know, you can't, you don't make money distributing your music or your film. So you figure out a way to, you know, make some money by touring, you know. And I also just philosophically, I think, you know, someone was asking me, do you, do I really watch the film at all these screenings every place I go? And I go, yeah, I do. Because for me, like the part of, especially this kind of filmmaking is the, it's a two way street. It's an engagement with the audience. And so like a, theater actor or like a musician it, 
if you're not there in the same room with the audience and hearing when are they laughing, what questions do they have in the Q&A, what, you know, what questions do they have before that you go in or the introduction, like that is part of the performance mm -hmm. as much as the film itself is. And, and I just think philosophically, that's, that's kind of my approach to it, is that this is, this, we are putting on a show. Mm -hmm. And the show begins when they see me wearing a sandwich board on Twitter, and, it, <laughs> and in the middle of it, they watch a movie, and at the end, they're hearing a Q&A with the cinematographer, or the composer, or the writer, or with me. And, you know, and, and, then, and then it ends further when they write something nice on Letterboxd or something mm -hmm. horrible, you know, <laughs> you know, or whatever. So it is, it is an, it is a two-way discussion, you know, with your audience. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's, I don't know, that gets a little bit esoteric, but the bottom line, I think it's a fun movie and it's fun with an audience, but I, you know, but as, as we're, when the timing of this hits, most people are going to wind up seeing it on VOD, which I still don't know how to watch movies on VOD. So I hope you guys do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I literally don't know how that works. In theory, it means that people will be able to watch the movie in the comfort of their home if they're smarter than me and know how to watch movies on VOD. And then hopefully it'll wind up on some sort of streaming ser streaming system mm -hmm. at some point. But you know, but, but that's why we want to do such a big push on the theatrical because I think that that you know the more reviews and added value and discussion about the film at this stage is going to make the distributor that's selling the video rights um you know have that much of an easier time oh yeah definitely no having that theater presence is definitely important and, and when you were mentioning that it just made me think about actually my first ever interview with this podcast with uh my friend pat sievert who does stand-up comedy because he was mm -hmm. talking about doing stand-up uh, at virtual events or you know everything like that and just how much different it was rhythmically than just yeah. going in front of a live audience and stuff like that because obviously when you're in front of a live crowd and and you tell a joke and it hits, I mean, that's like an immediate feedback loop. But mm -hmm, if you're doing mm -hmm. it virtually, there may be a lag. Maybe some people are muted or something like that. So it can it can get a little bit weird and, and like yep. hard to kind of adjust to and actually have that feedback loop. So no, I'm glad. Yeah, no, and, and likewise, <laughs> I mean, we made a concerted effort not to play at any virtual film festivals, mm -hmm. you know, and, and part of it was timing and part of it was luck, but we wound up playing you know, 10 festivals in the fall in the trough between Delta and Omicron, and then mm -hmm. another 10 odd festivals in the spring between the trough between Omicron and World War Three. And now we're <laughs> doing our theatrical in the trough between, you know, the BA2 and, and, and Monkeypox. So, you know, I mean, the feeling right now is just, you know, with all of us with doing everything is that, you know, you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So mm -hmm. make the most of today, make a film, shoot a film, show a film. That's my philosophy. It kind of always has been, but especially now. Like when I see filmmakers go, oh, I finished my film, but now I'm going to wait six months to hear back from Sundance. And then, oh, now I have to wait another six months to hear back from Tribeca or South By. And then a year later, and they haven't shown their film anywhere. And it's like, meanwhile, there's 3,000 other great film festivals out there with mm -hmm. built-in audiences. It's like, so I, I'm a big believer, make a film, show a film. So, Oh, yeah. You know, and look, if you can do it with a live audience, great. If you can't, then figure out another way to do it. I mean, some of the festivals had drive-ins, and that was really cool to watch movies, mm -hmm. you know. It, I mean, there's nothing cooler than having people honk their horn when, they, <laughs> when they're trying to get out. No, I mean, when they're, <laughs> like, in lieu of applause. But it's, a, it's just a totally different experience, um, but it's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, definitely. No, it, and yeah, drive-ins are great, honestly. I, mm-hmm. uh, that's something mm-hmm. I took advantage of kind of yeah. during the pandemic, and I know those are making a big resurgence. People love doing those. So yeah, to your point, there's a lot of different options, a lot of avenues you can do. I think the the you know the main point is just make it and put it out there. Yeah, right on, man. For sure. Now, awesome. Then, now, is uh, there a, oh, sorry. Is it, is there anything I forgot to ask about that you wanted to touch on before we get into plugins and everything? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, just the, the soundtrack is pretty awesome because it is all original and, and we, and, and I wrote, mm-hmm. uh, the lyrics to the songs that are on, there's a few songs on there and then had them translated into Portuguese. And we had a great Portuguese singer in LA, but also sang in, in Brazil and, Brazilian singer uh, Caro and and that that's just a whole project in and of itself you know because it, it well I mean oh the other thing we didn't mention is that we we started shooting the film in March of 2020 we made it 11 days in then we took a pandemic pause for six months and um, <laughs> and then came back and shot the, the the last four days so it did allow us to do a lot of you know we made the most of that time I learned mm-hmm. how to bake sourdough we made a soundtrack album, you know, like there's a lot of things that maybe if we hadn't had the pandemic, we wouldn't have done creatively on the film. But yes, the soundtrack is available on iTunes and Spotify and places like that. And then if for people who are in live events with me, we also have some some physical, flexible vinyl records that we had made in the Czech Republic with um, with two songs on them. So uh, nice. which are kind of fun. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. No. And I mean, hey, this this podcast is a result of the pandemic as well. So I feel like a lot of. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a lot of creative pursuits um, kind of exactly. you know, um, started yeah. that way or just people were busy with behind the scenes stuff, obviously being mm-hmm. safe, you know, like, well, in your case, baking sourdough or just like yep. doing some editing or doing more. Oh, well, I was editing scenes. the movie, too, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so. But yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, that's the thing is that, you know, life is going to throw us all some serious curveballs as we mm-hmm. move through it. So you just have to figure out how to make the, the best or the most of, of, you know, the time we have and, and, and be, you know, have fun and be creative with it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. So perfect. Yeah. Now I guess in addition to that soundtrack and everything, where can people find more information about yourself, your book, 18 and a half and anything else you want to plug? Yeah, on the internet. <laughs> Dan, I mean, my website is danmervish.com. Um, the film's website is 18andahalfmovie.com, but that uh, the one eight are the number is one eight, and then it's and then the rest is all spelled out and uh, halfmovie.com. It's it, the challenge with doing a, a movie title with a fraction is nobody's quite sure how to type that in, so <laughs> that gets a little complicated. Which is funny because in 1974, if you looked at any um, keyboard on any typewriter, there was a half character, mm. and you look at any computer keyboard now, there is not a half character. You can oh, you can make one on with computer. You know, there's a way to do it, but it's it's not it does it does not show up on your key, most keyboards. So anyway, <laughs> it gets a little complicated. Fellini figured it out. So with eight and a half, so who am I to complain? And then yeah, so that's where that is. And then I'm on Twitter at, at Dan Mervish and at eighteen and a half. And then Instagram is at eighteen and a half movie and D Mervish or maybe it's Dan Mervish. I, it's some variation on those, but we're on those. We're on. I'm on TikTok. I just posted a TikTok today. Nice. Which I think most TikTokers look at and go, "What is? I don't understand. This is weird." <laughs> but, but that's that's it. That's that's what we do. So 
Perfect. Yeah, no, and I'll make sure to throw all this in the in the show notes. And I am so glad you. that you mentioned about how difficult fractions can be to type out and everything. I never understood <laughs> why they got rid of the half sign yeah. on keyboards and everything. Because I know, and there and it is, so you have to like do a Google search, finds a, a place <laughs> for it, and then copy paste it into yep. your thing. I've I've now figured out <laughs> on my own keyboard, my own computer, it automatically if I type one slash two, it changes it to the half fraction. There is a way to do that, like in mm-hmm. your in your preferences. But you've got to want to do that like not everybody <laughs> wants to do it the easiest so, way to uh, like when i search for the film on google or whatever i search under my own name because it's the easiest way to do it mm-hmm. but the one advantage is we think that pirates are going to have a, just as equally a frustrating time with this <laughs> as we are because that's you know that's the other thing you're dealing with as a filmmaker is you're dealing with piracy and like getting ready for for that so whatever no very true yeah it's so it's the weirdest thing to me because i swear every time i type one slash two like whenever i don't want it to change to a half it changes to a half and whenever (laughs) i actually want it to change to a half it doesn't so it's a mystery yeah 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 exactly (laughs) i so yeah (laughs) anyway however people do it that's we're fine you know we're (laughs) like we it took us like two years to get imdb to to recognize two different ways to do the fraction <laughs> and you know and that's a, that's the thing you realize too is how much these a couple of these key databases are then their metadata just migrates into every other thing so mm-hmm. i so if it's wrong on imdb it's going to be wrong on on rotten tomatoes and wrong mm-hmm. on fandango and half these companies are owned by the same company and you're just like oh my god it's it's total <laughs> monopoly out there that's a minor issue I we know. should all be so lucky to have these problems so. <laughs> i know it's it's such a simple thing but at the same time it causes so many issues and that's a whole another separate conversation in and of itself but no i yeah. I, I understand the frustrations completely but no um geez dan once again thank you so much for taking no, the time for this and you, yeah like i said before i checked out 18 and a half and shared my thoughts on on it and on an episode of films for the void really enjoyed my experience with the film you know it's been a blast chatting with you and learning some of the behind the scenes aspects of the film and to everyone listening check out 18 and a half in theaters if it's playing near you or make sure to find it on streaming services starting on july 5th in the u.s and july 11th if you're tuning in from the uk or ireland and dan i wish you nothing but the best in all of your future projects at all these screenings whatever becomes of 18 and a half it becomes a stage play or not wish you nothing but the best in all of that and i had an absolute blast with this conversation all right thank you thanks for having me on man yeah of course all right you take care Thank you so much for tuning in and checking out the show. Links to the 18 and a half website, soundtrack, socials for Dan and the film, along with other resources, can be found in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review for Juxtaposed Journeys wherever you stream your podcasts. And maybe tell a friend or two about the show. Any feedback is always welcome and appreciated, and it helps the show reach more listeners. It also keeps new episodes coming out. If you're an entrepreneur, creator, or live an interesting lifestyle, take a few minutes to fill out the questionnaire I have linked below. If you're a good fit, I'll be sure to get in touch with you to be featured on a future episode. I just ask that you have some patience, as I'm pretty backed up with interview requests at the moment. So thank you to everyone who's reached out and has expressed interest in being on the show. 
The Juxtapose Journeys logo was designed by Darius Norwood. The website was designed by Elise Benner. And music has been provided by Young Pioneer. Editing for this episode was done by Kai Will. Final mixing and interviews are conducted by yours truly, Eric Spitz. Thank you for listening, and remember to never stop exploring.